The Derek and Mike Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. My name is Mike. This is my boy, Derek. What's up, Mike? How are you today, D? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been listening to our podcast, and uh, when you say, what's, that's my boy, Derek, I'm like, what's up, Mike? What's up, everybody? So, uh, I didn't expect your uh, premature, how you doing, D? Oh, oh! Did I uh, deviate from our standard intro format? Yeah, yeah. Toes. My, uh, I got thrown off a little bit there, but hey, it's good. It's good for improv, right? You know, I started listening to our our older shows starting from the beginning too, just to kind of do like a uh, uh, quality check. You know, making sure everything's in line and, and staying consistent. And it's not consistent. And it took us quite a few shows before we dialed in a an intro statement at all which lately it seems like our intro has just organically become uh, it's the Derek and Mike podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. My name is Mike. This is my boy, Derek. Uh, and then from there, I ask you how you're doing. Well, and, no, no. Uh, and I say, what's up, Mike? What's up, everybody? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you're right. And then I ask you how you're doing. And uh, I just stomped on that this time, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, my bad. Do over? You want to do it over? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not we, that important. Okay, all right, we'll just we'll just move on. We'll yeah. just uh, we'll just truck right through the mud here. There we go. Oh man, yeah. hey dude, I got into a really weird conversation that's pretty dark, which I think is kind of normal for me. Like I, I don't really have boundaries on conversations, and I ended up in a conversation that went really dark, and mm. I was enjoying it. And someone else who was overhearing the conversation was very put off and very like, why would you guys talk about that? Like, that's really terrible. And I, I had trouble getting perspective on someone or or I had trouble like um, seeing it from someone else's point of view who would be like, oh, don't talk about that. That's that's a bad subject to talk about. And I guess I don't see things that way. So I wanted to ask you about it and see if you thought it was off-putting or if it's worth talking about because I enjoyed it. And maybe I'm just fucking weird. But, yeah, no, sounds like it's right down my alley. Let's let's do it. So, <laughs> so somehow uh, I, we got on the subject of suicide, and I was thinking about suicide, not like not like committing suicide, but I was thinking about people who do commit suicide. What causes them to choose certain ways of going about suicide? Uh, and I found like a fertile ground for reflection in people's choices of place and method of suicide. And uh, I wonder, have you ever thought about that? Is this something you even want to talk about? Because the, the third person who was listening in was like so fucking offended they left. Well, you know, I, yeah, it is a dark talk topic for sure. And, um, you know, I feel like uh, maybe at the end of this, we should probably give like a national suicide hotline here just to be good Samaritans because there are people that definitely suffer from this. And, um, you know, I, I think that you know, what makes, I'm just going to say what I'm thinking here and it's not necessarily exactly through that topic of, um, I think you're looking to explore, but I, I don't know what causes somebody to choose something over another. I just, 
when I think of suicide, uh, I think I try to understand the mental state that the person is in. And, and it's really sad to me that that person sees no other way out than that. And, and that, that is really kind of in, in prison and people can get out of that prison. But, um, the, the methods though. Yeah. I, I don't, I totally agree with you on, on that sadness and that, that inability to understand and and it's tough to put yourself in someone's shoes but as an outsider it's almost easier just to go like oh i wish that person would have just given it more time and and let the problem kind of heal itself or or even just breathe a little bit and and uh chances are if you just kind of wait it out suicide's not the best option and it's really sad when it's like a young person maybe struggling with social acceptance or um mental instability or any number of different contributing factors it's awful when someone does it for for what appears to be the reason of feeling like there's no way out or things aren't going to get better or I'd be better off dead. Those are all like big time bummers. And yeah. I, don't, I don't really want to dive into that because that really is a bummer and I don't pretend to understand it. And I'm sure it's different for everybody. And I just hope you're right. Uh, if anyone is struggling with feelings like that or or feels like any of those descriptions is on par with what they are feeling, uh, my recommendation would be a tell someone who cares about you, get help, and give it time. And uh, and the don't. National Suicide Hotline is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five, or you can text hello to number seven four one seven four one. Okay, well that's really good. Thanks for looking yeah, that so up. I, I that didn't was, mean to, good you know idea. I I just I just feel obligated to do that you know. And, and I, yeah, suicide yeah. is a, is an irreversible choice, right? So, yeah. um, don't just, ah, oh, man. Yeah, it is a bummer. And maybe that's why the person walked away from the conversation. And I don't think I was getting into it in the sense of looking at people who, like you said, the, the really sad, uh, situation where someone feels like they have no way out or things aren't going to get better, or I'd be better off dead. All that's just heartbreaking. And, and, my thought on it started, the conversation started actually by talking about like the Jack Kevorkian assisted suicide sort of thing where someone's either, you know, really afflicted by, uh, by cancer or a disease or dismemberment or uh, for whatever reason, the person's living an absolutely pain filled, horrible life. That's only getting worse. And they're going to die soon anyway, is the way I imagine the scenario. And then you go to a doctor like Jack Kevorkian and he helps you choose the time that you leave the world and you get to control how it happens and, you know, manage your pain on your way out, say goodbye to your loved ones. Like it, it, it all those, all those good sides of assisted suicide, um, to me seems like an option that I would want available to me if I were ever in, uh, a situation where I was in so much pain or, or dying, of some super terrible disease or affliction that I I think I would want the right or at least option to choose. Yeah. I'd like to pull the plug on myself. Now I do not want to continue deteriorating. This is fucking awful. Um, I want that option. And then is that legal now? Cause I know the Jack Kevorkian thing was all super controversial. It may or may not have even gone to the Supreme court. I'm not totally sure, but is it, legal now? Is it like a state by state thing or is it universally not okay to go hire a doctor to put you to sleep essentially? 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that. And I think the legality aspect of it is a little silly, you know. Um, I Or like, should it be legal to kill yourself? Like, what are you going to do, arrest me if I kill myself? It's a little bit of a yeah, weird thing. Yeah, and, and you know, what do you get? You can't stop somebody by making it illegal. Um, and, and is criminal punishment the answer? Or should we be like, you know, having some sort of like uh, help available? Um I, I I have to imagine that's the answer. You know, I I'll be honest with you. I've never really thought about being in a situation that would be so bad that I would have to do that. So no, you know, I, not really. No, I mean, mean weird, dude. I oh, think about it. Yeah. Well, like in the in the case like where if like the the well like Hitler killed himself, right? He was in a bunker. And right, yeah. the allies were closing in on him. His entire uh, Reich was collapsing around him and he had no way out. He was in some bunker and he ate cyanide. Right. right. Uh-huh. Uh, so the equivalent of something, not not like if I was some, you know, mass uh, horrible asshole like Hitler. But if I was in some scenario where uh, death was descending upon me and it was inevitable and a bunch of guys were going to like, you know, kill me or whatever, would I choose to off myself? Or like the zombie scenario where you have a gun and you use all your bullets up shooting zombies and there's still bunches of zombies coming at you and you only have one bullet left in your gun. Do you shoot one more zombie and then let the rest eat you or do you shoot yourself before the zombies can get to you? Yeah. You, this, is a pra- this is a very practical question I'm asking you. No, yeah. And th- those thought <laughs> experiments I have done before, you're right. All right. Like where you're just like, you know, I mean, they are dark, but... It's like, oh, if I was in a situation where somebody, you know, put me in a very compromising situation, like what you're saying, would I prefer to just off it or just or just go however, you know, in a very potentially very painful way? Yeah, and, no one wants um, to be eaten by zombies. That sucks. I mean, <laughs> I'd, I'd rather shoot myself. than. I, but I think and then I wonder, like, would I be able to do it, even if faced with the terror and pain of being eaten by zombies? or fucking wolves or whatever the scenario is, uh, would I be able to shoot myself? Um, I think I would choose to do that, but how can you truly know what you would choose to do in that situation under the stress that would obviously be overcoming you? You never would. Yeah, no. you just never would. I, I think you're right. It was just, it's something that you would have to like go through and experience, I, I believe. I don't know, man. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's tough to wrap your mind on. It's easy to speculate, but I think speculation is pointless uh, because a being eaten by zombies is pretty unlikely, um, and knowing how you're gonna think or feel or react in in a crazy moment like that is impossible to speculate on. Sitting here in a safe environment, you know, I I give you uh, I give you you got guts for going there. It, it is a dark subject, you know, but at the same time, like. Um, you know, I, I don't know in the spirit of nothing being off the table, like do do we, as people think about those things? Yeah. You know, those things come up, they they come up sometimes and, um, however frightening they may be, you know, I, uh, the honest truth is they, they do come up, um, sometimes. I mean, personally, I, I've been so lucky to where I've never been in a situation where I've ever contemplated that um and and i don't want to make light of that because i do know that there are a lot of people that that even uh, will struggle with that you know on a on a more frequent basis and 
Sure. Um, you know, I I don't want to sound too uh, I don't know uh, airy fairy, but you know, you know, I I just I want those people. There is a way out. There's always a way out. And I know this isn't the direction of that we're going in, but um, I, I just feel like I can't talk about this subject without um, telling people like there is a way out of that that pain and uh, and feeling imprisoned and trapped. Yeah. Yeah. I always come back to we're all going to die really soon anyway. Like, why rush it? You know, you feel like nothing's nothing's going to change. It's terrible. I can't handle this anymore. Um, I don't know. In my weird perspective, I feel like it's all going to be so- over soon anyway. Just let nature take its course. We're all going to die really quickly. I mean, 80 years is nothing. 100 years is nothing. Very few of us even make it to 80 or 100. Um, so relax. Let life take its course. Take your lumps. And uh, it's going to be over soon anyway. Yeah. Which is a weird, a weird perspective. And I'm probably weird for thinking that, but I do think that all the time is, uh, and it's almost comforting to me in a weird, morbid way where something really bad will happen, or I don't even know if it has to be bad, just something will happen or even a motivation to get out and try something new or do something I've been putting off is like, uh, I try to tell myself, Hey, you're going to be dead soon. So do what you're thinking about doing or say what you're thinking about saying, or, um, treat things like they're so permanent because nothing's permanent and uh, relax. You're going to be dead soon. Great points. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a motivator, no doubt. You know, um, yeah. And I (laughs) I use it. It's such a bummer of a motivator. Like, yeah, it's, uh, Uh, no, I don't think so, man. It's, it's death is, you know, it's, it's something that we have to come to grips with. And, yeah, um, you can almost uh, yeah. use it, like you said, as a motivator to know, like, hey, should we start that business? Should we, uh, nah, 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 and you think about it forever and just be like, hey, you're going to be dead soon. Fucking do it or don't, man. It, it's so true. It's so true. You, you got to live your life and um, with the perspective that, you, you know, you, you're not going to be alive uh, for, like you're saying, relatively that long, nor are, are your loved ones, um, especially if you have older parents and stuff you know they they have a little yeah. bit of a shorter life lifespan too so we have to bridge that gap and um you know if you have an inkling to call your parents uh, call them you know uh yeah don't, no, don't even is, regret and you know that I, is so true I, I do you know how i i do i how i kind of look at this a little bit is like um and this was brought to me by a an amazing book that I read before is by Bronnie Ware. And she has a book called the uh, top five regrets of the dying. Mm. And what she was, was she was a, um, a hospice nurse where she would go to like a whole bunch of private residences that were most of the time able to afford her services where she would go. And I think she lived in Australia and she okay. really didn't have a house or anything. She just traveled. She was kind of bohemian, but she loved it. She traveled place to place, you know, and she assisted you know, these people. And she formed like some great relationships with these people. And what she found over time was that they actually had um, common regrets in their life. And, huh. um, you know, it, it really helped me put things in perspective because when you read those same regrets, then you see that you're not alone, number one. And you also see, I don't want to die with those regrets. 
Interesting. Do you remember what some or the or, or the top five were? Yeah, yeah, I I do. Some of them were. Um, let's see. Uh, one of them. I imagine was, not chasing a dream is pretty high on that list. Like, oh, I wish I would have started that company or invented that product or whatever. Something like that, maybe. Um, you know, I think that might be in there. Uh, and number one is actually it has to do with other people and okay. this makes sense to me but it, but it's sort of along those lines it's i wish i had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me oh all right so well, that that's... that is veiled in there mm -hmm. yeah well or just being just being real like exactly what she's saying there being true to yourself um i feel like so many of us go through life trying to please other people or what we think other people expect of us, uh, that it is rare to truly do what's important to you and and what's what's in your heart. As simple as it sounds, and as obvious as anyone who says that out loud is like, oh yeah, well that's obviously what you want to do in life, is why would I live for other people? F them, I want to do my own thing. But so few of us actually do that um, or display that in our decision making. I think so much of what we do and how we think of ourselves, how we dress, the jobs we take, the stuff we buy, the the mates we choose. So much of our decision making is influenced by what we believe other people want us to do. And that that totally rings true and, and is an eye-opening kind of a thing to hear someone say that, that on your deathbed, looking back, you would just kind of go like, yeah, I wish I would have lived more um, by my heart instead of um, doing what, what I thought I should do. Um, I should have done more of what I wanted to do. See, with you specifically, I, I don't see you much falling into this. I don't see me me much falling into this that much. But in reading the book, and I, I'm not, I think we all have it to some degree, right? Yeah. We, we all do, where, where we're scared to actually speak the way we actually feel. And sure. that, that's really what it is because you're scared, because you, we're, we put ourselves into a, a bucket or a, a prison based upon what others think that we should act like a lot of times. And, and the message in that book from what I remember was highly relevant around women. And what she was saying is, is kind of the women uh, from the greatest generation, the older generation where people did not get divorced and mm -hmm. they felt like they were forced to be married and sure. they, they lived kind of under a tyrannical control. Of, yeah, I think society um, told those women, like, you should be married in your 20s and you should be cranking out kids and you should be in the kitchen making dinner for that husband and those kids. And that's your role as a woman. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of women were impelled to do that. Uh, and maybe some of them loved it. Maybe some of them would have chosen to do something else. Um, but, yeah, I think that was very... That was very prevalent in those in those eras, the 40s, 50s, 60s. Well, and then the 60s, a lot of rebellion against that started, you know, the free love thing where women started kind of uh, pushing back against that that social norm or that social pressure. But that that would suck uh, to have that sort of pressure to give up your own dreams and basically be a servant in a lot of ways. Maybe servant's not a good word, but. Yeah, that's how it would feel to me is if my, my whole role is to make a man happy and have kids and make food for them. Like, all right, I want to have kids, but fuck, I want to live a life. I want to chase my own dreams. Uh, or maybe I don't want to have kids at all. Maybe I never want to get married. 
you know? Uh, it would suck to feel like you don't have that choice or that that choice would make you an, an outcast or, you know, um, kind of dampen your ability to operate in society. And, and uh, you you may be living with a tyrant of a uh -huh. husband. Oh, and, yeah. and I'm not saying, sure. I, I, I'm sure this happens to men as well. This is not just uh, fixated to women, but I, I do think common, it leans, yeah. it, I do think it definitely lean much more that way, uh, yeah, especially totally. in the older times. But oh, yeah, yeah. The, it was like, I'm the man of the house. You will do as I say kind of thing. Um, you, you, and that was, that was most of what those stories were. And I remember one lady saying like, why couldn't I speak? And, and he actually had died just before this lady in the book died, if I recall right. And she was like, why couldn't I just live the life that was true to me? Why he wanted this for me. He wanted me to do this. He wanted me to do that. Oh, why wow. I wanted to live my life. And, yeah. and she felt like he repressed her. Of course, you know, that that can be true you know at the same time sure. you have to always look at yourself and you need to find the courage in order to to overcome that because even if this yeah. person uh, it, you feel is pinning you down i guarantee if you have that trait the next person's also you're going to feel like the next person's also going to pin yeah. you down yeah I, I don't think uh that in general it's the person that's pinning you down it's the social expectation of finding someone who who plays that role and then you you play your role that you believe is supposed to be played and then at the end of it on your deathbed in this scenario you're going I never wanted to play that role at all that was not fun and I wish I hadn't done it uh, or at least I wish I felt like I had the option to do something different and what a sad regret um, but I think that totally circles right back around to that same thing of remembering through life when you are able when you are healthy uh, or at least when you're still upright and you're walking around to remember that you will be on that deathbed soon fucking soon um, a few years or a few decades is not a long time um, So remembering that that is right around the corner. It could be today You could get hit by a bus next time you try to cross the street, right? Yeah um, knowing that that is always right around the corner is um, scary, but it's also a motivator and It can be tempered by the realization that we're all going to do it it is inevitable. So whether it's a bus tomorrow or old age in a bed when you're 110, it's coming. And either scenario is not very far off. So um, picture what you might regret if you were to die tomorrow, if you were laying in a deathbed today. What would you regret? Would you regret not calling your mom? Would you regret um, not calling your kids? Would you regret not chasing your dreams? Would you regret not divorcing that guy who's an asshole to you? That's right. Uh, and by reflecting on your own life in that in that imagined scenario, while you are lucky enough to not be on your deathbed, imagine you are, and what would you change if you were dying today? And I think that will answer a lot of life's questions and help in decision-making decision -making and prioritizing. Um, very true. And Very, uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting thought. I mean, it makes me breathe deep because it makes me think like, fuck, dude, am I doing that? You know, I think we all get kind of caught up with just the minutia of life. And and, and uh, sometimes you're making decisions without even knowing you're making decisions, but not making a decision is even a decision. And it's just kind of like, hey, am I just being swept along in the tide of life? Am I in control here or at least in control of of the things I can be in control of? And am I really thinking about my decisions or am I just taking the path of least resistance? And am I just kind of letting things happen? Um, 
Uh, well, yeah. you're you're almost bleeding in some of the next ones. So let me. Number two is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Oh, I wish I would have spent more time with family, done more fun things, not focused so much on on work. And this was one of the ones that she said was mostly men that that re- okay. expressed this. Of course, you know, during that time, I think it was sure. mostly men that were you know uh, yeah. working more. But um, well, you think about yeah. so guys in that era, not even not even you know, pretty fucking recent eras too. Like maybe our generation is the first one that doesn't this this doesn't apply to is guys are expected to be at work all the time. Forty or fifty hour weeks are kind of the minimum as far as social expectation. And up until recently, and I only became aware of this because now I'm a dad, is it's very new for men to be involved in kids, in in the raising of kids in a lot of ways. Um, the, The example that pops into my head is for both of my boys, every time they had doctor's appointments from the day they were born, you know, there's a lot of following doctor's appointments, some vaccinations, a little like one month and six month and 12 month checkups and all the, all the pediatrician visits after the baby is born. Um, I went to every one of them. I took those days off work, or at least I took a half day. We went as a family. I was in there with the doctor's office. I know their pediatrician. I I think I've only missed one doctor's appointment. Um, and it was important for me to be there. And I've talked to customers or friends and told them like, oh, no, I'm off today. I'm going to the doctor for my kid. Oh, is your kid okay? Yeah, no, it's just his three-month checkup. And I've heard every time I tell that to someone who's a little older than me, wow, that is so cool that you're doing that is usually the response. I didn't do any of that for any of my kids. My wife did all of that. I just, uh, all I did was go to work and my wife did all of those appointments. And and uh, I think that's always, or at least for a long time, been the case. And I'm glad that's changing. I'm glad I'm in a role now um, or in an era now where it's the norm or at least more normal for a guy to be more involved. I would be bummed if I was missing out on all these things. Like, I like going to the doctor's appointments. Um, I really, I really do. And I don't know if that's a personal choice or if I'm being indirectly influenced by the social norms of my generation. But uh, I don't know. I think it's important. And I think for a lot of guys in the era that you're talking about where they were being interviewed about what they wish or their regrets on their deathbed is, yeah, I wish I didn't spend so many of my fucking hours at the office. I wish I would have spent more of those hours with my kids or my wife or my friends or whatever I personally enjoy because so very few of us truly enjoy what we do for a living. Most of it's just a a means to finance our life. Um, That's a sad regret that at the end of it all, does money really matter? Um, Right? I mean, Yeah, and that's one of the things that she mentions in the book too. She was saying that, you know, um, because she said every single man said that. She said, every male that I nursed said the exact same thing. I wish I didn't work as much. And Mm. one of the suggestions she said was like, you know, sometimes we don't have to live to the same means that we want. We can live, a lot of times we can live way below our means and kind of just live a a freer life where we don't have to be so encumbered by Mm -hmm. the things that we own. Prioritizing what's important to you, right? Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to, all right, I have to have a massive house and I have to have a bitchin' car and I have to have all these expensive things. And in order to pay for them, I have to work 60 hour work weeks. Um, okay. Now is, are all of those fancy things more important to you than 
spending more of those work week hours, more of those hours with your kids. And if it really is more important to you to have a rad car and all the expensive stuff, then you're doing what makes you happy and you probably won't have that regret. I, I, I personally doubt that, but maybe it's different for everybody. Um, I doubt if it you too. could, right? Yeah. And I know mm. you feel similar to me. So maybe, maybe we're a self-selecting, uh, group here, but I have to imagine if you're able to put a decent roof over the kid's head, put decent food on the table and only do a 40 hour work week or less, you know, maybe you're only working four days a week. Uh, if you're able to book more hours with the kids when you're dying later on, and your kids are grown and out of the house and you hardly even see or talk to them anymore because they're busy and now you're alone in the nursing home and you're dying. You're going to look back and go, shit, man, I guess that nice car really wasn't that important. And uh, that super fancy house, like, wasn't necessary. We could have raised our kids in a normal house, a much less expensive house in a less expensive area. And I could have been home more. And I imagine that's a really common regret. Yeah, um, I remember my my grandfather... Uh, was dying when I was uh, like 19, and I remember him saying that he was like, "Hey, take take this thing." You know, it was, he he was giving me some things, and this one thing that he was giving me was a box of my uncles, and it was uh, my they they loved it. My grandmother and grandfather. My grandmother had passed six months earlier, and I was my first comment was like, "Are you sure?" He's like, "I'm not taking this with me." <laughs> <laughs> and my grandfather kind of, I wouldn't say he was materialistic. Well, no, he wasn't materialistic. He, he was kind of, uh, he made good money, but he like drove a Ford, you know, but he did All want right. the nice things for his family. But uh-huh. uh, towards the end of his life, he really started loosening up quite a bit. And um, it was really interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That really is, man. So it's interesting to think about that and reflect on that. And then, yeah, your grandpa's totally right. Like, I, I'm not going to take it. Sure, I love this thing my whole life. It's it's an important piece of of who I am. Uh, but it ain't coming with me. So I'm leaving you behind, and you're an important piece of who I am. I would like for you to take this thing that's important to me, remember me, enjoy it, use it, keep it, because uh, I'm dying and and I'm out of here. So. Uh, so number, huh. number three is I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Huh. All right. That was more females, I think. Right. Does it show you? It says like many, a, 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 many people suppress their feelings in order to keep peace with others. As a result, oh. they settled for a mediocre ex- existence and never became who they tr- were truly capable of becoming. Many developed illnesses relating to this bitterness and resentment oh. they carried as a result. Wow. All right. Yeah. I can't remember if that was, uh, mostly women. And I I definitely do remember, uh, some women complaining about that when I read the book. I don't know if I remember it, but you know, that it's, it's so true. You got to be true to yourself, you know, because you might be like, Hey, I want to say that, but am I going to offend somebody? Am I, you know, but this is how I truly feel. But I'm scared to to express that feeling or, you know, you, you may you may be getting intimidated by somebody who doesn't want you to express your feelings, yet you're you're living the lie for them because they don't actually want to hear what you actually have to say. And that's not love. 
No, no, no. That's, uh, yeah, no one wants to feel suppressed. Huh. That's an interesting one. My first thought is sometimes it's a little self-indulgent to think everything and tell everyone everything you're feeling. I think it's important to talk about your feelings, but I also feel like you need to have some sort of a limit or filter on what you dump on other people. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's more about like, mm, I see this one happening more so in marriages where yeah, one one person doesn't want you to be yourself. They don't want, they will criticize aspects of the other person. Yeah. So that the other person hides it from them and doesn't keep it, oh. doesn't express, doesn't just truly show themselves who they are. And, okay. you know, out of not causing conflict because that would cause conflict and then that would, you know, may even lead yeah. to a divorce or whatever. And they're like, you know, mm -hmm. well, for the kids, I'm just going to shut up about this thing. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to actually express myself. And, yeah. you know, you, you live with that for so many years when you get to your deathbed, you're just like, man, I just, I, I only cheated myself. And luckily yeah. I can say that I, I don't have this issue like with Megan, like with Megan, her and I are, are pretty open and I, I think she's open with me too. I, I want her to be as much as possible. And I, you know, you always got to look at how you act as, you know, individually. And, and I, I don't think that I, I repress her or try to repress her, but, um, so, but, but yeah, definitely, uh, I, I do think sometimes she, she holds herself back because I see her, sometimes I hear her conversations and it's not, she, she really has other ideas when she's talking to people, but in order to not offend them, she will, uh, say what she thinks that they want to hear because she's a people pleaser, I guess is the, the way to say that. Is she? Yeah. I guess I can kind of relate to that too. I guess yes and no, it's tough. I guess we're all kind of a mix, right? I don't um, really see you much having that issue about expressing your feelings. I think you're, you're pretty forward about that. I am sometimes too forward. That's probably, I think on my deathbed, mm -hmm. I'll think, I wish I would have. I wish I would have said less about my feelings. I wish I, I, I was such an asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have that regret. I'd be like, oh, yeah. maybe I didn't need to tell that guy he was annoying. I, I could have just let him be annoying. It was. It wasn't that annoying. I didn't need to say that. I, I'll probably have that regret. Doesn't I think that, I say too yeah. much? Doesn't that yeah. hurt sometimes when you look back at at some things that you did where you were a jerk? And man, sometimes uh, I get like I get like just jolts of. Oh my gosh, how disgusting was, that? I mean, like it'll, it'll flow through some previous experience where I said something that I wish I hadn't said oh, or man. some way that I had said it. And, you know, it's like the instant karma thing. Like when you do something like that, it, you carry that for the rest of your life, you know, because people will say like, oh, well, you know, um, oh, they're getting away with that. You know, he was a jerk and he's getting away with that. No. Nobody gets away with anything. Whether they see it or not, they're carrying that negative experience with them through their life. And some people are so calloused that they they can't, they won't have, have that memory come back up or they'll be so calloused where they're, uh, they don't think that, that what they did was bad and they can actually cover that up. But the truth is, is that that's kind of a, a devolvement of the human spirit when you're not in tune with 
hurting other people. Yeah. Yeah. I have similar regrets. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of them, especially like soon after I say something, maybe I'll, I'll say something. And then the next day, or even for days or weeks afterwards, I'll just, I'll, I'll keep replaying it in my head. Like, man, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I would have not said this, or I do a lot of that, <clears throat> a lot of reimagining a scenario and, and picturing in my head what I wish I would have said, or wish I wouldn't have said. Uh, and I know in my head that it's a pointless thing to relive that in my head over and over because it, it went the way it went and I can never redo it. Uh, you can even address it with them later, but it's never going to undo or redo what was done. But I still do that. And then there were a few things in my my life that I truly like. I, I still, like you said, it just carries with you where you just regret being an asshole or saying something to make someone else feel shitty that you either didn't care or didn't realize at the time. And the one I'm thinking about right now was like all the way back in elementary school. And I remember making a, a not so cool kid. His name was Jeremy. And he he was, you know, like he would he just wasn't he didn't fit in. Right. Everyone kind of chose to dump on the kid. He wasn't super cool. And um, I jumped on the bandwagon of making him feel bad and probably just to make myself feel more in by making him feel more out. Right. Mm -hmm. and it has bothered me for my entire life, and uh, I can't do anything about it. I don't know him anymore. Um, it just is what it is, but I've always felt shitty about it, and I think the only thing I can do is try to instill in my boys... Well, the first thing I can do is treat people um, the way I would want to be treated and, and treat people better moving forward, and I've always made an effort to do that, not always successfully, but always I'm always trying to be aware of that. But I want to try to teach my boys that uh, it's so common in school, in school-age kids. I think especially boys, well, maybe girls too. They do it in a different way. I think it's so common for school-age kids to um, gang up on other kids socially who may be less cool or not in, and it makes you feel more cool or more in by making someone else feel less cool and less in, and that's fucked up. Um, and that really affects kids long-term to be ostracized and made fun of you know? Yeah. And now as an adult, I realize that more, but as a kid, I had no awareness or, or of that at all. And, uh, that kind of stuff is sad. And I think kind of twisting back around to that, like really unfortunate, um, thoughts of suicide kind of thing we started the show with is I think there's so many of those scenarios where young kids in school, um, are made to feel like outsiders. And so many kids start, getting down on themselves and getting into some sort of a downward spiral that may or may not get as far as thoughts of suicide. Even if it doesn't go that far, it's still so unfortunate for kids to just feel that crappy about social acceptance at a school age. Because man, as an adult now, you look back and you think like, what a virtually meaningless period of my life um, that felt so meaningful and so permanent at the time as school you know, and being cool or not being cool or being in the crowd or not being in the crowd or, you know, people liking you or not liking you. Like it felt like the world ended or started on being accepted or not. Like it was the most important thing in the world in school. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's so unimportant. And uh, man, 
that's uh, so yeah, yeah, making that kid feel bad and other similar situations, but that one in particular, I didn't do anything like super bad, but I definitely kind of crapped on him along with other kids. I went along with the crowd and made him feel shitty. And as a result, I have felt shitty my entire life about it. And I deserve that. It was fucked up what I did. Yeah, I, I have some experiences like that too. Um, just a couple, like one where I was, somebody was picking on somebody and I, I kind of w- would egg it on a little bit. Yeah. And it was yeah. just, yeah, it just, I don't know, just so, I it, it haunts me to this day, just like you, you know, uh-huh. I, I, that poor kid probably suffers. I suffer from that too. And that's the part that, we narrowly see sometimes is that we think that, you know, people think that you get away with it. You don't get away with it. It does. If you're a sensitive person, it haunts you. And mm-hmm. and if, and if it doesn't haunt you, you may be devolving a little, you know, you might be too overly callous and, and you need to look at that too. Yeah. 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 Totally. I think it's important to be self-aware enough to be willing to feel bad and honest about that. Um, but it certainly doesn't make it hurt any less. It probably makes it hurt even more to be really open to the idea that I I did something I'm not proud of, owning it, and uh, that is what it is. Um, nothing will change it. It would be cool to bump into that guy in a grocery store at some point and try to make him feel good, but I would probably do it in some awkward, overcompensating way, and it wouldn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, you know? And he's probably fine. He's probably living his life. He's probably, you know... Uh, but yeah, goddamn, dude. In my memory, it's still, it's still he and I as as fucking fifth graders or whatever we were, and uh, me being a dick for no reason. But anyway, yeah. I'll let that go. Yeah, that one eats me up. You want to hear so, the fourth okay. one? Or yeah, yeah. So we just left expressing your feelings. All right, what's the fourth one? The fourth one is I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Huh. All right. We've touched on this before. Yeah, we have in in a mixed in a mixed setting, right? Um, yeah, because you know I, I I I love all my friends that that I have had. Yeah, and um, I'm qualifying that because there are some friends that I have also kind of grown apart from. Uh, to be, I still love them. To be yeah. quite frank, yeah, but I still love them. We just we're not in a, a in a compatible mode. I would say. Yeah. We're not still active friends. We're, we were friends and that's cool. And that'll always be there. Uh, I'll always love you. I'll always think of you as a friend, but, uh, we're not like currently active practicing friends. That's okay. Yeah. And this, this, I, I could, you know, if you think, you know, you're on your deathbed and, you know, maybe because the friends that you have, you know, you do share a lot of experiences. So, you know, sure. this is kind of more of deathbed thing, but like if I if I do picture myself on my, on my deathbed, there I I may feel that way on my deathbed, but well, I, think I feel like if right I was now dying, I don't. Yeah, no. I, I my first thought is I am in touch with the friends I truly care about. Um, the friends I'm not talking to regularly are they're like like you said they're still friends. We're just not actively pa- practicing friendship today. Maybe that'll change. Maybe it'll never change, but it'll never change the fact that we're friends. Um, And then some friends like you and I have gone through periods like this where we literally won't talk for a year or even several years. And then we talk and it's as if not even a day has passed. Everything's the same. There's no uh, 
yeah, there's no uh, awkwardness or anything. There's no catching up. I mean, there's catching up, but it's not like getting the friendship back to where it was. It immediately starts back where it was, no matter how much time has passed in between talking. And that's um, that's the one thing I got to say, like with you and me, that is one of the hallmarks, I think, of our friendship is that I've never had I've never called you up and, and you say, oh, where you been, stranger? Oh, uh, like I, I could, we could, we could talk like two, we could have two years of nothing. And I think we may have had two or, or we more have years. Some, yeah. Yeah. And totally. then we talk, we're like, Hey, what's up? Hey, good. Or, and there's been times in our life, I think where I've called you and I don't get a call back. I don't get offended. You call uh-huh. me, you don't get a call back. You don't get offended. We, we yeah. both know how we feel about each other. It's just yep. kind of like, Hey, He's busy. You know, I don't take offense to that. Mike is Mike. Mike is my friend. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't change any of that. And it's so great to have friends like that because life gets busy. I mean, especially as an adult with a job and a, and a husband and a father, uh, it is very easy for a few days to turn into a few months to turn into a few years. And next thing you know, you're like, oh, my God, I haven't called Derek in three years. That is totally possible. It'll probably happen again through our course, um, but it'll change nothing. And that is so... Um, we are so fortunate to have that in each other. I don't know that everyone has that. It's rare. Even someone like you and I, who we do have lots of friends, few of them are that um, are at that level. So I feel fortunate to have you as a friend like that, dude. Same here. Because it, it, isn't it not always a drag to to be like, hey, how come you you know you know what I'm talking about? Like, hey, oh yeah, you, dude. Like you said, you talk to someone trip. you haven't talked to. Well, in this person that we're talking about, it's not even like it could be, it has to be three years without talking to them. It could literally be like three weeks. And then you call them and they immediately have to make you feel bad. They have to punish you by doing one of those things where it's like, oh, oh man, where you been, stranger? Long time, man. I haven't heard from you at all. You're just like, oh, this feels like work. I don't even want to be on this phone call, dude. Don't expect another one anytime soon. Um, I hate that. It feels like a chore. Because, you know, you're not in a... I, I'm a man and you're a man. Yeah. Like, I'm not dating you. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I don't, I, owe, I don't, you I don't owe you an explanation. Yeah. I don't owe you. Uh, if you don't call me, you don't owe me an explanation. Um, yeah. You know. No, we're we're friends for like uh, for for good times only. I, I don't. Well, no, that's not that's not. I'm fine with going through bad times or whatever, but. Um, we're talking because we want to talk. I, I don't have to call you. And uh, this is starting to feel like you're expecting me to call just to call. And I don't want another chore. My life is full of chores. Um, I'm calling Derek. Do, so. you, do you get that a lot? <laughs> Would you say that you get that a lot? Because uh, I, I feel like I kind of do sometimes. And and I don't know if it's just like people are... And Me- Megan says I get that a lot. And uh, uh, well, I, I have a feeling you might too. I do, and I get it more and more these days in this period of my life now that I have kids that I don't do fun things. So it's very rare that you're going to get a call from me that's like, hey, we're having some people over this weekend. Come on over or we're doing something fun. Do you want to join us? Um, We don't have people over. We don't do anything fun. We change diapers. That's our life. So there's not a lot of me touching base to invite you to things. Most of my friend phone calls are purely to just go, hey, let's talk for two minutes uh, which is rare. So I'm just different now. I don't have as much time in my life for friendship or I don't have as much, I don't have as much fun in my life to contribute or to bring to a friendship table. 
Um, so there's just less of it to go around. And um, it has it has just naturally filtered out some of the pseudo friends who are still totally friends. I just don't I don't interact with them as much as I would other friends based on the situation. Like there, there's a lot of really good friends who I love, who I'd love to see and I would love to have a beer with. I'm just I haven't talked to them in a really long time because we don't relate on where we are in life. Uh, I don't have anything to invite them to. And phone calls where I just call to say hi are awkward. And uh, there, that's it right there. It's like know, sometimes, like, sometimes you do want to talk to them, but then you're going to be on a ball and chain again. Yeah, yeah, that's you that's know, what I, it is, dude. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yep. Ah, uh, that yeah. sucks. Yeah, but it is what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just uh, like a different frequency that you're on than yeah. the other person, and you know, um, that's. Like you said, that's just what it is. Well, it makes me think of your brother, Ron. I, I I love him to fucking death, man. And it go it's so long in between talking to him right now. And the saddest part about it is he actually lives really close to me now. Um, and I never see him. I never talk to him. And I think about him all the time. And I think, God, I should just give Ron a quick call. And not that he hangs me up with any of this kind of stuff that we're talking about. He's not a high-maintenance friend at all, dude. Right. He's super casual and cool. If I call Ron and be like, what's up, bro? It would be exactly like we talked about, you and I. It would be picked up from from right where we left off, whether it was five years or ten years or however many years. He's awesome. Yeah. And I I need to call him, honestly. I'm, I'm realizing that I'm neglecting that friendship, maybe taking it for granted, even though it is there. Uh, I know it's not going anywhere, but... Uh, I enjoy it, so, and I'm sure he would enjoy hearing from me, so I need to call Ron and say hi. Um, same thing with some other friends. Uh, yeah, I just, god damn, dude, I feel just so busy. It's so tough to keep in touch, but it's important. And what I need to do, what I think about doing sometimes, and I don't practice it a lot, is I need to start booking friend phone calls and friend friendship maintenance phone calls like I book business calls. I keep a... Uh, a calendar, like a, a paper day planner kind of a deal that that I work out of my truck a lot. I do the fucking podcast out of my truck. And I keep a little paper um, weekly planner that just sits kind of in between my seat. And that's where as I'm driving, I look down and I've got like little to-do lists like, oh, call this customer and whatever. And so many of the things I do for work are just phone calls that I can do them while I'm driving in between physical visits. And I need to start booking friend maintenance phone calls like that just to kind of go, hey, here's a list of people you haven't talked to in a while. Um, and just kind of give them a quick call while I'm driving from one thing to another and I've got 22 minutes. That's more than enough time to touch base and say hi to one or two friends. I need to do that. Yeah, no, that that is a good idea. You know, sometimes sometimes that guilt when I, I maybe I overthink it, but somebody who I haven't talked to for a while I I go through a mental exercise of having called them and then it feeling awkward and thinking about, oh, should I call them? Should I talk to them? And I, I go through this whole mental exercise and a lot of times I just talk myself out of it. Instead like, of just, I just now it feels like work. Yeah, instead of just giving giving them a call. And you get all like worked up in your head, like, okay, I'm ready to call. All right, I'm calling this guy. And you call and then it goes to voicemail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, on that note, are you a guy who leaves voicemails or do you just hang up when you get someone's voicemail? Well, I don't let it get to the voicemail. I just oh, I hang up. You I, hang you up. Know, I, yeah, oh. I, I'm like, 
I would be on your good list here where it's like, I call, I will hang up before it gets to voicemail. I know you saw that I called. If it's, uh-huh. if it's not important, sometimes I'll just follow it up immediately with a text, not important, just saying hi, or follow it up with a text about what, what I meant to call with, but I, I won't really leave a voicemail. I don't, I don't, personally, I don't like to listen to voicemails if I don't have to. Uh, I don't like voicemails at all. And I think it's even a generational thing. Um, I'm almost surprised when a person in my generation or even younger leaves a voicemail. Like, you know how phones work, right? Like, it's not a landline. I I see that you called on my notifications. It's as good as a voicemail. I know that you called. Um, And then even better, like you said, if you shoot a quick text like, hey, just call to say hi. No biggie. Hit me back when you get a minute. Uh, Nothing important. That's awesome. Uh, Or even, hey, just wanted to ask you... Uh, fucking whatever, whatever, you know, I just wanted to ask you if, uh, if you're going to be home next week, was going to swing by and drop off that thing I told you I was going to give you. Um, that is a cool move. Yeah. When you get a voicemail, I almost kind of think like, fuck, like now I got to go listen to that. Um, it's better be important. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a funny voicemail and I appreciate it just for the fact of being funny. Uh, other times it's, Hey, what's up, man? It's me. Give me a call when you get a minute. I'm like, Really? That was not necessary at all. Um, yeah, well, or like you, the one that you bit. got uh, last time or a couple podcasts ago. Oh, yeah. Hey, Mike, call, call me. <laughs> call you know, me. What sucked the most about that one is I needed that information. Like I have yeah. an office team that, that they're an operations team where they're the ones that like do things. So I'm out making a bunch of deals and they're in the office like making shit happen. I'm writing bucks that I'm writing checks that their butts have to cash. And uh that phone call was about a a check that her butt was cashing, and I needed information. I needed to know, can we do this? Like, how are we doing it? What's the details? I need this response so I can get back to a customer. And her call to me was a voicemail that was, hey, it's me. Give me a call when you get a chance. Like, ah, I need the information you were calling me with. Why couldn't you just, why couldn't you leave that in a voicemail? You knew, you, knew you were calling me to give me information. Yeah. And instead, you demanded a phone call from me because I guess you want to hear my voice. And it's not a super abstract piece of information that requires explanation. It's literally, hey, we can be there by two o'clock. Like, it's a very voicemail friendly piece of information that I'm waiting on. Uh, You left me a voicemail. You just neglected to leave me the information I needed, which caused a lot of back and forth. And now I'm just pissed. I don't blame me on that one. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. can't stand yeah, it. That's that's drudging up all that anger from that, that time. Yeah, too. <laughs> you know what's angry. funny? I just while we're on this podcast, I just got a call from the country of Vienna, and they left a voicemail. Well, Vienna's not a country. Vienna is a city in Italy. So. Well, yeah. I, I don't feel stupid at all now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm a smart American. Um, <laughs> it's not America. That's all I know. Um, so you got a call from Vienna, huh? Yeah, I got a call. What from... fucking time is it in Vienna right now? Shit, you got, man. You got, a, Shit. you got Google handy? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I think it is like twelve hours ahead of us, or eight hours ahead of us. They are. It's late, man. It's like eight or nine o'clock there. It's a twenty second. Twenty seconds. I'm scared to listen to it. Should I play it? Uh, it better be in Italian. I want to hear buongiorno, 
The country code is 4-3. Whoa. All right. I don't know what that means. Let's but do it. It's, it's not America. Oh. No, I'm... Oh, Did you know it's going to be legal uh, action? Some uh, oh, I'm, hey, I'm looking your at auto tr- your auto warranty is expiring. Give us a call to extend your auto warranty. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, this this doesn't look very friendly. Um, they, they they they're spending a lot of money to call you from Vienna, Italy, uh, about some fucking bullshit telemarketing nonsense. Why don't they just uh, route that through an American company? Yeah, that's I'm very sure odd. I have to say, there's plenty of American companies willing to blow your phone up with bullshit. Yeah. God, I hate that. I hate yeah. that fucking uh, man. And that's why but I hate cell phones. Yeah, that's why I hate voicemails too. Like, you know, I'm glad for the transcription. I know you've talked about oh, the transcription, but yeah, it, it kind of ruined my day when I see this like call from Vienna. We're going to have to take legal action, and it's like, who are you? I don't know anybody out of the country. Like, what is yeah, going do what on? You, yeah, do what you need to do. I don't give a shit. I, I don't care what you do. Yeah, I, uh, I don't. I don't know you. I don't care. Don't call me. Do whatever you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> I dare you. I fucking dare you, Viennese telemarketer. Word. So the last one is, I wish I let myself be happier. Oh, okay, okay. The last uh, top five regret on your deathbed. Wish I, I wish allowed, I let myself be happier. Wish I allowed myself to be happier. Well, that's, that's an interpret- interpretation. That, that really feels like it falls into the I wish I I wish I live my life for me and I wish I expressed my feelings more. I feel like number five is a amalgam of those two uh, bullet points. Um, well, it it also encapsulates the stop and smell the roses kind of thing, right? Where you're not so right. caught up in the head. I, I would okay. guess May, maybe. All right. I like yeah. I like know. that angle. Okay. Okay. It's a weird way to say it, but let's let's call it that. That's that to me is like the top, the top number one regret. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's probably it's it definitely seems like the most. I don't want to say enlightened. Reg- I, I guess enlightened regret where the other ones are kind of like um, personality flaws that you have nursed more so um well not the working so hard i don't know maybe we all might have that one even no matter what but um well let's stay in touch with my friends i don't know it's kind of tough huh but yeah wish, wishing um i let myself be happier so what it says is this is a surprisingly common one many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice they had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits the so-called oh. comfort of familiarity overflowed in their emotions as well as their physical lives. Fear of change had them pretending to others and to themselves that they were content when deep within they longed to laugh properly and have s- silliness in their life again. I think we all can oh. hear that. I think we all yeah. can. Yeah. Now I really like this bullet point because that means something different to me. That means... um there's a quote, and I can't think of it right now, but essentially it's um, happiness is all perspective. Um, that happiness is not a state of being. It's a, a perspective that starts within my own, my own perspective, or is a shitty, stupid way of saying it. Basically, I could choose to be happy about something, or I could choose to be upset about it. It doesn't make the situation any different. The only thing that changes is my perspective of it, my own mindset. Um 
and I'm in control of my mindset, and I should be. I can control whether I'm happy or sad about something, and I could actively choose to sit and be sour, or I can accept something, and I can choose to be happy about it, and loving everything for what it is is a much happier state to be in uh, than allowing events to cause you happiness or sadness haphazardly, as if anything outside of you can control your own perspective or mindset. And and it's like, uh, you know, happiness is like the, um, I think we look at happiness as a state like you can attain or something, but I think it's more so like the absence of something. It's the absence of that fear and the okay. abs- absence of uh, being caught in a rut. Uh, maybe your rut is like, uh, maybe you're in a, you have agoraphobia or something. You're kind of scared to go out of the house and that fear is overwhelming, but you're not conquering your fear. And instead, you know, you can tell yourself that you're like, it's saying you can tell yourself that you're happy, but you're really fooling yourself. That that's an important point in there too. Is like, you can, you can kind of fool yourself that you're happy, but in reality you have an underlying overwhelming, uh, your rivers of, of, uh, fear that you have, uh, you have an undercurrent of fear in your life that you're not addressing, I think, or you're not, you're not acknowledging, you're not incorporating kind of into your life. Yeah. And yeah, when I say yeah. incorporating, it's like, you know, I, I think we all hide from how we feel a lot of times and our feelings, and we don't want to, uh, be honest with ourselves about those things. So at least me, like a lot of times I'll live in denial of a certain something, whatever it may be, whether it may be that, Oh, that doesn't bother me or, um, no, I'm okay. If I, if I, uh, you know, stay inside all day and I'm like, I'm not going to do anything today. I just feel like laying in bed and I'm going to be happy with it. And re and sometimes in reality, I'm like, you know, I just need a little extra ump to just go do something that I really wanted to do. And then when I do it, I just feel like a little triumph that I've overcome. I've um, accomplished a fear that I had. Yeah. 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 Huh? Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I just think that, you you know, sometimes happiness can be a state that we, that we try to achieve, but it's really an absence of, of, uh, painful states, I think. Sure. Huh. That's interesting. So the state of happiness is just the absence of sadness. So happiness is the baseline. Like you're always happy and you can only descend into sadness, but you can only ascend back to the baseline of happiness. Yeah. All right. I think that's, that sounds, uh, I picture it, I picture it differently. Like I picture indifference as the baseline, like kind of nothing. I'm just, I'm just kind of, you know, eating milk toast, uh, whatever milk toast is, but it's, uh, I'm indifferent to it. So I'm just eating milk toast and, uh, I can go up into happiness. I can ascend to a happier level or I can descend down to a sadness level, but my baseline is indifference, just being, I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm just here chewing milk toast. You mean, are you saying like you're not engaged in chewing milk toast or? 
or or I'm entirely engaged. I'm there, and maybe I even like milk toast, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm eating milk toast. I'm just I'm just here. I'm just doing this, and uh, I'm not happy about it, but I'm also not sad about it. I'm just chewing milk toast. Well, then, how do you make yourself happy? Like, what is uh, it? You know, I mean, well, I can. Ooh, that's interesting. I can be made happy by circumstances, which letting circumstances dictate my state of mind, which is not ideal, but when something makes me happy, I don't fight it. Uh, that's just kind of like, hey, sweet, that's awesome, and it made me happy. Or if I realize I'm being indifferent, I can choose to make myself happy. Uh, God damn, for me, like as simple as looking at a plant, <laughs> lame as that sounds, uh, I'll sit at my table sometimes and I'll just kind of eat breakfast. I eat breakfast really early in the morning and I'm alone, and, and I'll just kind of sit... And I'm in that indifferent kind of, I'm just in maintenance mode. I eat the same thing for breakfast. I'm not happy about it, not sad about it. I'm just eating breakfast and I'll look out into my backyard and I'll see like the le the branches of my tree swaying in the wind and it makes me happy uh, in some connected with nature-y kind of a way. What a hippie I am. So, but, so are you saying that like when you're indifferent, you are kind of in a, a thought daydream like thought program, thought process? Uh, oh, and yeah, maybe. I might I might be like picturing things in my head. I might be thinking. Sometimes, honestly, not. Sometimes I'm literally just sitting there, like just being. And maybe because I'm tired in the morning or whatever, but I'm not always deep in thought. Um, sometimes I'm listening to an audio book. That's pretty often the case. Uh, but, yeah, sometimes I'm just kind of, I don't know, zoning out. I don't know if I'm really even thinking. I guess. Would you say unaware or, versus being aware? I don't know. That's tough. That's tough. Um, I'm afraid to say I'm unaware. Even if I think I might be unaware, I think there's still some awareness going on there. What are you driving at? Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to relate it into my own experience okay. there. And, uh, um, because to, like, when I think of the word happy, you know, I, I can think of specific instances where I'm happy, where I am laughing or I'm with friends and, but it's not really much of a manufactured event that I can actually produce. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I was going with like, well, then what is happiness? It's, and to me, it's more about, um, non, not deceiving myself of, of my current situation, I guess you could say where I, where I don't feel like where I'm not compelled to seek happiness. Right. Okay. Cause that, that seeking of the happiness is suffering. That is like kind of the definition of suffering where if you're not trying to change your current situation, then that is contentment. Maybe not happiness. Mm. Happiness is, is a little airy fairy sometimes for me. Okay. To say like, oh, are you, you know, are, Ooh, I'm that's happy, that's an interesting one. You know? Like content, contentment or fulfillment is different than happiness or joy. Like maybe, you know, that's an interesting way to describe it is sometimes I, I feel just content. I'm just, I'm fine. Yeah. Everything's good. I'm not fucking elated. I'm not, I'm not over the moon right now. I'm just, I'm just, I'm good. Everything's good. I'm content. I'm fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that. Huh. that's how I, you know, yeah. So this, this bullet point here. That um well and, and I, wish I, I allowed can myself to be happy more. That's what it was. 
yeah, I wish I had let myself be happier. But, you know, it, there, you know, I, I can't really poke a hole on that either, though, because it's true. I mean, there is a conscious effort in order to sure. allow yourself to be happier in your life. You know, you, you know, if you ask somebody, hey, what are the steps that you can take to be happier in your life? I mean, that's a critical question that yeah. that we should all ask ourselves. What can I do in my life to be happier? And I, I think we all can answer that, right? You know, actually, yeah. I'm kind of feeling motivated to go write this down right now. What can I do to feel it? Because I want to take those steps. I want to, yeah. to progress in my life a little bit more. Well, I think it's pretty easy to get caught up into a pattern where you find reasons to make yourself unhappy. And I think all of us do this to some degree where we'll look for things that bother us or we'll look for things that we're unhappy about. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's kind of in an effort to, oh, these are the things I want to be different. I want to be better. I want to change. I want to build that. I want to fix that. I want to do that. But it it causes us unhappiness to focus on the things that are wrong or not done, the negatives, where we would be much better served to focus on the things and that we do have, the positives, be grateful for what we do have, be happy with what we have. And, um, oh man, that reminds me of a quote. I think it's like Seneca, the Roman Stoic uh, guy who said something like, um, oh, fuck, I'm going to butcher it. But essentially it was like happiness is the state of not wanting more, um, which is a neat way of, of like... Stoic philosophy, I think, has the stigma or misunderstanding of being, um, you know, a cow standing in the rain, and he's just content standing in the rain, even though he's getting pummeled by rain. And I don't know where that analogy came from, but that's a common description of what people think of when they think of Stoicism. And I like Stoicism. I don't know that I'm a Stoic, but I identify with that philosophy a lot. I like it because it's basically taking things for what they are, accepting things for what they are and uh, being happy with what you have in a nutshell. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to attain good things. It doesn't mean that you should only eat um, bread and water and wear boring clothes and live in a super bummer house and never do anything for fun and be happy with that. It literally means that you shouldn't be coveting the nicest car and, and feeling unhappy because your house isn't big enough or whatever, like being happy with what you have and enjoying what you have, but not feeling like it's not enough. And by not wanting more, by being happy with what you have, you're much, well, happier, obviously. That, that seems like an obvious one. But um, for some reason, that, that thought made me think of, of Stoic philosophy and that Seneca quote. I feel like it's applicable a little bit. I kind of like the Stoic too, and I, I'm not so versed on it. There's been a few videos I've watched of people kind of yeah. explaining the Stoic um, mindset but i think they also have some type of like a uh, thought practices in a way that i've related to and I, I actually have used these before in the past uh not knowing that they were kind of stoic thought practices but have you ever had like where you have a fear you fear something uh -huh. and every time you think about it you're like oh it's so scary right so there, there's like a, a thought practice where you can keep imagining that fear, like, like picture your picture that event happening that you're so scared of over yes. and over and over. And it desensitizes you from that fear so much. Yeah. Like I'm afraid of getting fired. 
uh, oh man, I hope I don't get fired and imagining all the things that would, you know, be terrible in your life if you were to get fired. Um, really focusing on what that would look like. If I got fired, I would go file for unemployment. I would um, possibly not work again for six months or three months, or it could be several months before I work again. What would that look like? How much money do I have saved up? How would I pay my bills? What would the actual nuts and bolts of being alive every day, um, how would they work if I were to get fired today? And by going through that exercise of breaking that fear down, it becomes much less scary. And uh, that's a cool way of of diminishing or eliminating fear. That is a cool practice. Yeah, that that has worked for me in some regards in the past. Um, you know, like you go through a breakup or whatever, and you're like, uh, you can help get over that by picturing that person with somebody else. I mean, as painful as that is, like you know, you, you, you do that and you're like, oh gosh, but then you know what, after a while, that emotion kind of just starts to, to drain a little bit and you're not so, you're like, oh, well, uh, you kind of are breaking down the, um, where you would lose, you know, your identity with that person might be close and tight. And then more and more you do that, that identity starts to uh fade and you're not so you you become a little bit more independent i guess there's an interesting uh quote that is something like um the anticipation of something bad is often worse than the reality of that thing um basically like if you're afraid of something happening you imagine all these terrible things around it um but the actual reality of that thing coming true is often far worse than the stress you put yourself through of imagining what would happen. Um, like the, the fear of something is often much worse than the something. Mark Twain has a a similar thing and I'm, I'll botch it, but it's just very much similar to that. It's like, I've had so many worries in my life, you know, and really only hardly any of them have ever come true. He says, of course, Mark, he says it in a Mark Twain way, which is, I love Mark Twain. Isn't it amazing all that the uh I love that aphor- guy. Aphorisms that he's got. Do you ever read any Mark Twain other than like the obvious ones, probably like Huck Finn when you were a kid or something like that? No, I haven't. I, um are his uh, books good like that or I love his writing. Um where okay, so for me he's two different writers. Um one of which is the Mark Twain that wrote The Innocence Abroad. And I love The Innocence Abroad. It is such a fun fucking book. Essentially what he's doing is he went on a world tour where he went around uh, overseas. So he's an American, obviously. And he went over to like Europe and Italy and a bunch of other countries. And during his travels, he wrote a story about a fictional character who went on the exact same trip that he went on and he used all of his direct experiences that he ran into with people in Italy and France and and England and all these places he actually went to. He wrote it while he was there, but he wrote it in the form of a fictional character doing what he was doing. Um, So it has the guise of fiction, but it's really uh, nonfiction essentially because he's out there traveling with a group of people through all these countries uh, in the 1800s. And it's hilarious not surprisingly mark twain is a fucking funny funny writer his perspective is so uh wry and raw and and sarcastic 
and insightful that it's just so much fun to watch him be a dick. <laughs> I fucking love the guy. And um, that book is so fun also for the snapshot of the places he's traveling because he went there in the 1800s. And he goes to places like Rome. And I've been to Rome. And what I saw when I went to Rome is very different than the Rome he saw in the sense where it's very uh, touristy now. And I, I know it was touristy then, too, but it was much less restricted touristy trip in Rome when he went there. You could walk up to things and touch them in his days, uh, where now everything's roped off and you can only see it uh, in a big tour group. But he didn't sit and dwell on the beauty of of the uh, the Parthenon and the Colosseum and all the standard Roman sites, he complained about some asshole waiter or something like that. Mm. And and it's just, it's such a fun book. And, and him complaining about an asshole waiter is witty and concise and hilarious um, like no one else can do. He finds and, a hypocrisy uh, in everything too, doesn't he? Yes. That's, that's a beautiful yes. part. He yeah, He just, and he presents it in such an eloquent way. Like, he's almost wow. Seinfeldian. Like he sees things in everyday interactions that I, I would totally miss. And he picks them up and brings them to light in such a funny, insightful way that you're just like, oh, my God, this guy is brilliant. Oh, man. One of my favorite quotes by him, it's going around a lot. It's it's easier to deceive somebody than to convince them that they've been deceived. Ah. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that guy. Yeah. Oh, man. He lived a tough life. Um, Did he? Yeah, yeah. Not surprisingly, a lot of creatives, a lot of writers. I picture him with life. no shoes most of the time. Is that, was he poor? Or? Uh, uh, no, no, it wasn't poor. Um, he was very famous during his lifetime. His books were big time hits, and he was a very famous guy. So... He made a lot of money going around speaking. He went on speaking tours. I think there was even, and I could be wrong, but I think later in life there was a financial hardship time where he was kind of forced to go back out on a public speaking tour. But essentially he lived he lived pretty comfortably. He got to do fun shit, like travel all over the world and write awesome books about it. Um, he uh, had a pretty rad house that he didn't spend a lot of time at, but he, he lived comfortably. He lived a good life. How was his life um, difficult then? Uh, family, family troubles, stuff like that. Just, just difficult kind of stuff. I, I, I'll botch the specifics. So I don't know that I want to get into the specifics of, he had like a, a child that was afflicted with some sort of a disease, if I remember right. Mm. And went through some really tough times there and, and some of that kind of stuff, you know, just life. Um, yeah. everyone's got, got tough stuff in their life, but his ability to, um, put a tough situation or even a small nuance of a situation into some sort of prolific quip, some witty little two liner or even one liner was just unmatched in literary history. The guy is just a treasure. I love his books and even something like Huck Finn. I've read Huck Finn. It's great. I don't know that I'm uh, enough of a litty literary connoisseur to truly appreciate it. Like it's a good book, but um, I absolutely loved The Innocence Abroad. It's just fucking phenomenal. Would totally recommend it. It's nothing but fun. So it's kind of a, a third person. Would it be considered an autobiography? Well, uh, what would that be so called? It's, 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's fiction because it is a fake character. I mean, it's him. He's talking about what he does, but he's a fake character. He he builds fake characters around himself and creates scenarios and conversations that probably never existed. But all of it is based on experiences and places that he's going at the time while he's in his in his travels. Um, so it's kind of a mix of of a. I don't know if it's an autobiography. What would you call it when you're writing a story about yourself going to do something? Like, uh, it would be like essentially me going on a tour and me writing a story about me going on tour, but I made up a fake character named Doug, and Doug is going on that tour with his family. And I think that's what happened, actually. Mark Twain, if I remember right, was alone on this tour with a tour group, but alone, essentially, uh, no family or anything. But in the story, he is with his family. So he's making that part up, right? But... In the story, he's going to all the same places that he actually went to, and uh, but were they in this just, life? Uh, oh no, 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 no <laughs> that's that's. But you don't find that out to the end. That's the twist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's just so much fun, man. It's such a rad book. And then he follows it up with one that the Innocence Abroad was a huge hit, and then he went on another tour through a different part of the world. I want to say it was like India and Egypt and. The Orient and, and uh, a bunch of the places that he didn't go on the first trip. And then he did a similar sort of a book. That one was called uh, A Tramp Abroad. And that one is equally hilarious. Same sort of a structure. Um, I don't know if it's as good as The Innocence Abroad, but sequels rarely are as good as the, as the original. But yeah, just incredible writing. Not surprisingly, but I don't know. For me, if you've never... If you've only read Huck Finn, you only know a part of Mark Twain. I would go read it, The Innocence Abroad and A Tramp Abroad, or Roughing It is fucking awesome also. Um, that's him going out and just living in the uh, the cowboy frontier of early America um, when it still existed back in the uh, cattle rustling days and cattle driving days and all that. Um, so that's a rad book, too. That, to me, is my favorite Mark Twain. I, I love the, those pieces. Yeah, you know, yeah. I wonder... It, it... To tie that into like the top five regrets of dying, you kind of wonder like where he was at on that spectrum. Like did what his regrets may have been. And uh, because he he did sound like a very worldly person and, and most certainly his quotes were just still so relevant to this day. I mean, he really captured the human element. Yes. He seems like someone who had everything in a really focused perspective and i'm sure that's not entirely true for him personally it sure sounds that way by the work he left behind but um i feel like uh having well not known the guy or or anything like that i feel like what little i know about him and from his writing i feel like my best guess is to his regret when he died would be i wish i would have spent more time with my with my kids or my family i wish i would have spent more uh -huh. time at home instead of always being out. But I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know him. He died before I was born. Yeah. No, that would, that would be... Uh... Guys like him are why I just wish the fantasy of a time machine were, were possible. It would be so cool to go meet Mark Twain and uh, have a beer with him and just uh, try to get him to talk as much as I could. That would be awesome. Who would you want to go back in time with and have a beer? Ooh, boy. 
We'll call this the Time Machine beer game. Well, I I think uh, I'll have to bring it back to Zen probably. And I would say... Like Buddha? Would you go back to straight up the the Buddha? Um, You know, probably not. I think that there's other uh, Zen masters in the past that kind of piqued my interest a little bit more. Uh, I would say uh, Hong Zhu, who he was... uh, in the 700s, mid-700s in China. And he was, uh, I think that some people think that he may have been more enlightened than the Buddha. Uh, At least Dogen Zenji, who was uh, one of of the most enlightened Japanese, would just call uh, Hongzhu just that old Buddha. All right. And I've read some of his or one of his books, um, I forgot what it's called, Letter uh, Zen Letters is what it's called. And okay. it's just, it's pure poetry. It's not even like, you know, some Zen books are kind of like explanatory, trying to explain Zen to you and explain and teach you and stuff. But his his book is not, you know, it's just pure poetry, yet it's also teaching. It's just so amazing. I would just love to... It, be around that person. I would mm. just love to to witness him. Huh. I don't even have to drink a beer with him because I, I guess I kind of idolize him. Uh, just... Or maybe it would be more like like sake sake bombs, yeah. something like that. All right, <laughs> or uh, or that sake you got me for my uh, my Zen priest. Name. What was that? <laughs> it was called? called Nagasaki, and it was Nagasaki. shaped like a bomb. <laughs> yeah. So I'll start the story off, and you could finish it. Oh god. So I. I had a, uh, I was ordained as a Buddhist priest. And, big deal. And, and you came to that. It was, it was a very yeah, big a deal. Ceremony. Very, yeah, big very deal. ceremonial in a very Japanese Zen Buddhist place. We all wear robes. We're high ceremony, high, high ceremony. Big deal. It's customary to bring a gift. And I, I think I may have told you that just so that, you know, you, you don't feel like, oh, I, you know, y- yeah. you would rather be told that than not bring a gift. Yes, which I appreciate. It sucks when everyone's like, oh, don't bring anything. And everyone brings a gift. And you're like, now I just feel like an <laughs> asshole. Come on. So in the spirit of that, you got me a really nice sake, which was great. That was great. And it was like in a in a blue bottle. And it, just a beautiful bottle. But then at the top, at the top, explain the top. Oh, I mean, it just looked like a bomb. It was a mushroom right, cloud. Right, the whole thing right? was shit. <laughs> it's a mushroom cloud at the, <laughs> yeah. at the top. It was, it was called Nagasaki, yeah. and it was a mushroom Nagasaki. cloud at the top. <laughs> it was commemorating our dropping of, I believe that was the uh, uh, the big boy bomb on Nagasaki. Uh, not a great piece of <laughs> Japanese history, I'm sure. I don't I don't know that they're, uh, they're as... Uh, uh, into that event as maybe some Americans, and that was probably not the best gift. <laughs> and you said something about it, like I think you didn't quite understand. Like you didn't realize what it was oh, no, when you I had didn't brought think it there. That. No, I was like, oh, sake. Oh, this one looks authentic. <laughs> I don't know. It was probably my thought. Like this looks like Japanese sake. It's called Nagasaki. Like this. This looks. This looks like a good uh, Japanese-oriented gift. And then. Uh, at some point, it became like, "Hey, this this really resembles an uh, a bomb explosion," and it's called Nagasaki. And you huh. you, you realize right. that at some point, just pro- I think it was like literally like just a little short time before you actually 
gave it to me. And, oh, man. And it was, it, there was a, a room full of people where I'm kind of accepting gifts. And you, <laughs> you placed it down on the table in front of everybody with a qualification. You're like, yeah, I don't think this was like the best thing to get or something like that. <laughs> of course, everybody there was like so easygoing and the teacher was like sitting right in front of it. And, and I think he started laughing too. Like when oh you did that, God. he's like, oh, you know, it, it's just everybody knows you didn't have. I mean, but why would they make something like that? You know, why I, does that exist? Why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's that's... not your faux pas. Yeah, you know? dude. I mean, that, yeah. that's awful. Yeah, it's just awful. It yeah, was. it's like having a product with some name that reminds you of like concentration camps from like Nazi Germany or something. And it's, you know, it's like in a in in the Jewish aisle of the grocery store or whatever. It's like, that's probably not a good idea. Like, why would you make Japanese sake that looks like a bomb called Nagasaki? Like, uh, that's weird. That was it... July 606. Uh, oh, man. Oh, wow. Wow. 666. Huh? No, 766. Oh, 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 July. All right, yeah. Oh, well, actually, 7606. All right. Japanese are big on numbers, aren't they? Um, are they? I didn't I didn't know that. I know that the favorite Japanese number is eight. Okay. For, like, infinity, right? I don't know. I think it's just a lucky number. Oh, sure. dude, something totally unrelated, but I'm thinking about it, so I'm going to tell you. And we just talked about Rome. So one weird little tidbit of information about Japanese people is they really like Julius Caesar. Weird, right? Um, they really yeah. respect him, revere him. They hold him pretty high in their uh, esteem. And when we were touring the uh, the Forum, which is where that was like downtown in uh, ancient Rome, and oh. the Forum is still there right next to the Colosseum. You can go to it, and there's um, lots of old Roman buildings and the... Uh, the main road through the center of the forum was where they held Roman triumphs. It was like the centerpiece of their major uh, ceremonies where a triumph was like when a guy like Julius Caesar went out and, and won a big war and accomplished, you know, a big thing for the Roman Empire, like expanded their territory or vanquished some foe or whatever, did some rad military shit. They would hold a uh, triumph for him and it would be a big party. And the culmination of the party would be Julius Caesar riding a chariot down this road through the Roman Forum and being, like, uh, you know, honored for his great deeds in war and the uh, the advancement of Rome and all this kind of stuff. Um, right there in the Forum is the tomb of Julius Caesar. Uh, it's said to be right where uh, they, when he was murdered, uh, stabbed in by the Roman senators, uh, the people of Rome went fucking nuts. They tore down a building and burned it and turned it into like an impromptu funeral pyre. And I think the story is, is that they basically fucking, uh, uh, burned him on that funeral pyre right there in the forum. And th that spot is where his tomb is. Um, so it's all a ruin obviously, but you can still see his little like, funeral memorial i don't know not a headstone but a little lump of uh rock where that's right where his ashes were buried or where the the funeral pyre was built or whatever um anyway so this tomb of julius caesar is right there and it's a really big deal for japanese couples 
to rent the forum, which is fucking hard and fucking expensive, and hold weddings there. It's a big wow. deal for Japanese couples to get married in the Roman Forum near the Julius Caesar Memorial or, or the tomb of Julius Caesar as a connection to his greatness or just because they think he's awesome. But that's weird, right? That struck me as weird. I was like, yeah. huh, Japanese people dig Julius Caesar, huh? All right. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he's that, awesome too. But I forgot weird. that you went there. The, that Those pictures, you you had such an amazing time. Over there, that was an incredible I, trip. I, I yeah. saw. I mean, those pictures were just like um, phenomenal, and it feels like you are in a documentary or a history book when you're standing in Rome and looking around, and you're like, "Wow, that's the Colosseum!" And it's, I've yeah, seen it wow. a billion times, uh, uh, so you feel familiar with it, right? You've seen yeah. the Colosseum on postcards, on fucking everything, and then it's right in front of you, and you're like, "Yeah, that's that's the Colosseum." It looks exactly how you would expect. But it's still incredible. It's just, uh, it is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. And I've traveled a good deal. And yeah, Rome for me was just incredible. Also, also Athens. We went to Athens. And standing on the Acropolis and looking at the Parthenon and just, just standing on the Acropolis is incredible. Like the birthplace of democracy and such a, such a central stage for the advancement of Western civilization is it's uh humbling it's cool that is cool i you know i've been to many places in europe but not not the i don't know how you call that but i've been mostly germany and france and austria and all amazing places but um when you sent those pictures back i was like wow that's really that's really ancient shit you know germany is kind of it's old don't get me wrong it's real old but it's not rome old and um, that well, Caesar thing. Well, and Rome is certainly not Greece old. I mean, Athens is way older than Rome. Uh, and then I've never been to Egypt. And you want to fucking talk about old. Right, uh, yeah. You know, it would be rad to go see the pyramids and the Sphinx and all that. And I feel like I missed that opportunity. When I was younger, Egypt was stable. Um, but uh, Egypt, to me, freaks me out now. Sure. Maybe I'm just ignorant, but I don't no, know. From what little I know, it's it's my understanding that they're they're run now by uh, uh, kind of a Muslim extremist group, as far as I know, and I don't want any part of that shit, dude. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have the cliff notes as to why they killed Caesar? Oh, uh, yeah. So that was when Rome was a republic, and um. Caesar was a big-time military victor and empowered himself or rose himself to a, a level where he alone rivaled the entire government, um, the whole senatorial class, everyone. It, it, it looked to them, the senators, like Caesar was going to make himself a king, uh, overthrow the government and take over as a dictator uh, or as, as make himself king. And so they were really afraid of that. And once he gave them an opportunity, um, they they basically just stabbed him to death in the in the senators' chambers. And it wasn't the normal uh, weird little pointless note, as it wasn't in the normal senators' chamber. That one was under construction. It was actually being held at Pompey's Theater, which Pompey was another major politician, another big military guy who rivaled Caesar for military greatness. He was a little older than Caesar. Um, he had some super rad theater complex 
and part of it included a building that would also serve well as a temporary house for the Senate to meet. And the Senate was meeting there. Caesar went there to, you know, uh, basically go and, and contribute his part of it as the new de facto leader. But uh, later on, it was discovered that he probably wasn't trying to implant himself as a king or overthrow the government. That was like kind of paranoid thinking. But, you know, who knows? But that's what it looked like after his death. But at the time, the Senate was totally convinced Caesar was trying to take over and make himself king. So they stabbed him to death. Senators themselves stabbed him to death on the Senate floor. And uh, that uh, act had the opposite effect they were hoping it thrust Caesar's adopted nephew, Augustus. His name was Octavian and later became Augustus. And uh, he became the first Roman emperor, ended the Roman Republic, and that kicked off the Roman imperial years, the Roman uh, emperor control. Uh, Augustus was the first emperor. And Rome became a uh, empire for, gosh, 400 years uh, wow. And then Constantine and then Rome itself, Western Rome, fell. Uh, and then the Eastern Roman Empire went on for another, I don't know, a thousand years or, or, or quite a while, several centuries, um, centered out of uh, Constantinople, which is now called something else that's escaping me. I still think of it as Constantinople because I'm a history nerd. Yeah, but I was going to ask you because... <clears throat> You gave that one explanation as to why they killed him. But, of course, we know that the victors are the ones that write the history. Sure. So it's not, uh, we have to kind of, there's always two sides of the story in a war. Yes. And What's so cool about Roman history is we have access to a lot of records written by all sides. So we actually have a lot of writing from the senators oh. themselves who planned and, and actually executed the killing. Mm -hmm. Um Guys like um, Marcus Brutus, who famously, you know, uh, uh, Caesar looked at him while he was dying and said, like, the famous etu brute, like, you too, Brutus, which they don't think was actually said, but essentially, you know, like, really, you too, dude, we were friends, you, you fucking stabbing me too. Uh, so writing from Brutus himself and writing from guys like um, Cicero. Uh, who was a big orator then and, and wrote a lot, They and he was very against Caesar. Um, they have a lot of writings from those guys, too. So the paranoia of Caesar trying to make himself king was very real to them. And uh, they chose to murder him to protect and prolong the Republic. And uh, in the event, they did exactly the opposite. They killed the Republic, uh, initiated the Roman imperial days. Asabia became the first emperor, yeah. Asabia wins every time. What, what's that? That's that's an article I read on a place called tabletmag.com, and it relates back to the Afghan war, how it relates to when Russia invaded Af Afghanistan and got defeated. And then we obviously weren't so successful. And, uh, and that's what Asabia is is basically the fun when you attack people just for being people uh, they will fall back on their spirituality okay and um, you know maybe it's not a complete accurate correlation but I don't know it sounds like you know the the people of of Rome felt like that was uh, uh, they they felt spiritually vindicated to uh, not allow what just happened to Caesar. 
Um, so that it just it's just coming through my mind here. But it, it, oh. it it's it's an interesting article uh, if you would want to read it. Um, yeah, you would Asabia. It's like uh, it's spelled ass. A B I Y A, Asabia right. wins every time, and it's um, huh. yeah, it's really one of the um, more interesting articles that I've I've read. Huh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I'd, I'd like to read that. I find that kind of stuff really interesting uh, in so many different ways. I love military history. I love ancient society history. Um, I love human uh, nature history. Um, I enjoy that a lot. I actually just finished a whole book called The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. And that is a brutal and raw look at human nature in general from a lot of different angles. And it really opens a lot of doors on on viewing yourself and viewing other people um, based on human nature and what humans are just more likely to do and why. And it makes it so obvious that we are so animalistic and uh, so predictable in general yep. that um, it's important knowledge to have, I think. And Robert Greene approaches it from a from an entrepreneurial, managerial kind of a professional perspective of, hey, here's what motivates and here's what motivates people and how you can use that to your own benefit um, sort of thing. So there's a little bit of an undertone of that, but it's a lot of historical examples of people displaying these different types of human nature um, behaviors that, that, that he's describing that it's also this really fun history book where he goes through all these different events throughout history that illustrate his points that he's making. And that is a really fun book. Um, very long, but very detailed, very exhaustive of the subject. And uh, yeah, Robert Greene's the laws of human nature. Super cool. We always think that we are evolutionarily advanced more than the previous uh, generations, and not so. I think you is what you can uh, attest yeah. to based on on the human nature, right? I mean, when we uh, we can be worked up into um, flights of fear, and in those fear driven moments, uh, we end up um, giving up freedom. I mean, that's continuously happened throughout sure. history where the fear uh, people can't handle it and they're, they're willing to listen to guidance to somebody to pull them out of that fear. But a lot of times it's the very people that want the control or the ones that are creating the fear. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm kind of connecting that to the, the change in Roman society where Caesar was killed because senators feared losing their power uh, and then by killing Caesar, they brought about exactly what they were most afraid of. They entirely lost their power and Rome transitioned from a republic to a complete empire uh, under the control of one man entirely. Um, so like the Roman Senate still existed after it became an empire, but uh, they were just basically there to... Uh, debate and do the bidding of the emperor. It was truly came down to the decisions of one man, the emperor. Um, but they still existed as a body, but they did lose all their power. And their fear of Caesar is what caused that loss of power. What book is this again that you read? I, I'd like to read it. The human nature one? Well, no, the, the I would like to read the Rome, the, the oh, history of Rome. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been into Rome for a long time. So endless documentaries, endless books. 
Uh, I will recommend one Caesar book. Um, we give me a minute to look it up. Yeah, I know it's yeah. it's I think it's just called Caesar, but I don't remember who wrote it and anything better for you to actually look it up. Um, so many great books on Rome. Did you so many kind did, of lame before ones you too, went to but, Rome? Did you like envelop yourself and read the history and then kind of go over there and experience it that way, or was it afterwards? I have been a a nerd of Roman history for a really really long time. Uh, it started with uh, with documentaries. I would watch a lot of documentaries before I was really much of a book reader. And then once I became a book reader, I read everything I could possibly get my hands on uh, with regard to Rome. Hmm. And I absolutely love the subject of the Roman Empire. And I, I, I just love it from, from so many different levels. I love old Rome when it was a republic. I love imperial Rome. I love the... Even I just finished a book called um, uh, Everyday Life in Rome, and it is entirely about just the regular people. It even talks about some of the some of the emperors and and uh, bigwigs, some senators and that kind of thing. But most of the focus of the book is the everyday lives of people in Rome, businessmen, poor people, uh, and what they ate, what they did, their customs, like just the normal everyday life in Rome. It was such a fun book. It's a short book too. Um, so anyway, the book on Caesar that is probably the best to really go and learn and understand Caesar and the times surrounding him and what happened, uh, is, uh, books just called Caesar by Adrian Goldsworthy. Uh, oh, actually it's called Caesar life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy. That book is, uh, a really great place to begin that kind of a study, but there are so many great books on Rome. Oh, I'll check that out. So many. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun topic. I love it. I actually love to collect Roman coins, too. Before I ever went to Rome, I'd, I think I've talked to you about that before, but buying, like, lots of, of unclean Roman coins and cleaning them and trying to attribute them and figure out what time period they're from and who's on them and what, they, what the imprints mean. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm such a nerd. That is cool. I just love history in general. I love traveling around. I love going overseas because when you go to Europe, uh, you're dealing with a... a uh, so much more history than you're dealing with here in America. I love American history, but it's only, you know, uh, three or 400 years at most. And then you get into like Native American history, which is interesting, but it just doesn't interest me a, a lot. Um, maybe because there's not as much to sink your teeth into. There's no old 2,000-year-old buildings from ancient Native Americans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some like Clovis mounds and things like that. And that's all interesting, but I don't know. It's just not my particular point of interest. I love Western civilization history. I love uh, Roman history. Greek history was super cool to dig into. I love Venice. Uh, I, I really like Venetian history on its own. So it's kind of tied into Roman history, but not really. Venice really started to explode after Rome fell. And to me, Venetian history is so much fun. And Every mover and shaker, everyone like from Mark Twain to Lord Byron to, I mean, every bigwig throughout the ages has visited Venice. Uh, fucking Marco Polo. The, the list is endless of people who are connected to or at some point visited Venice. And it's neat to see the city through all these major historical figures' eyes for however long they, they lived or visited Venice. But it's a really neat a really neat place that everyone important has touched through so many 
uh, eras all the way up through through to the Renaissance um, that Venice is a neat city. Lots of fun history in Venice. And the city itself is essentially a museum. I mean, the buildings are the attraction. You just, you're in Venice, you're in a museum. It's rad. Yeah, no, that is, that is really cool. Yeah, well. Um, well, shit, man. We covered a lot of topics today, Derek. Yeah, this was we fun. Did. Yeah. We should wrap it up. It's getting long. This is, I think, our longest podcast yet. Oh, okay. But, uh, it was fun. Organically so. It just, um, it just kind of worked out that way. We, we were getting into some fun territory there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that book and, uh, kind of interested in Mark Twain a little bit too. Uh, totally recommend the innocence abroad or even just Mark Twain himself. Uh, we watch documentaries on Mark Twain. There's a lot of great photos, a lot of great footage. The guy himself is awesome, but yeah, the innocence abroad, man, that's where it's at. Roughing it is really rad too. Cool. What was the name of the book that you mentioned earlier where it's the, the top five things people regret on their deathbeds? Top five regrets of the dying by Bronnie Ware. Like Ronnie, like yeah, paper towel, like Ronnie, but with a B. Oh, okay. Yeah, and where, like, like W A R E. All right, Ronnie, where the yep. top five regrets of the dying. Mm-hmm. I like that. I'm going to go check that book out. I think that is an interesting thing that would help us all appreciate what we have, be more aware while we are alive, and have the ability and luxury of doing something about it before we're dying and regretting it. Yep, absolutely. All right, man. Well, on that note, always fun. Love talking to you. Same here, dude. Oh, we didn't even touch on your birthdays tomorrow. Oh, you remember that. Oh, shit, I didn't yeah. even tell you. Yeah. And and I don't <laughs> care about birthdays, but I love you, and I hope you have a great birthday, man. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. I'm going to have a great fun? one. I appreciate that. Yeah, hell yeah. Are you doing anything? Uh, my daughter's having a birthday party here, uh, a pool party. Yeah. So for like for her birthday or for your birthday? For her birthday. But Oh, are you guys close? Yeah. In oh birthday? yeah. Her birthday's on was yesterday. Oh. She well was dude. My, yeah, okay. Yeah, she was. Well my that's 40th really important. Present. I mean your birthday, eh, but yeah. your daughter's birthday. That's that's big news, man. Tell that's her happy right. birthday for us. We'll do, man. We'll do. All right. All well right, you bro. guys have a great co birthday week, weekend party and all that in the pool. That sounds fun. And uh great talking to you. You too, bro. <laughs> Thanks a lot for listening. We really appreciate you joining us. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. And for more episodes and info, check out DerekandMike.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.